Good morning, everybody. Or perhaps I should say good day, seeing as we have some listeners all the way from Australia and it's no longer morning, or some of you have slept in and it's no longer morning. It's good to be able to be with you today. South Africa moved to stage four on the 1st of May, which meant that some of us were able to go outside and have some exercise. But particularly if you're alone and stuck in a flat today and have been for many weeks now, we want you to know that we're thinking of you and praying for you. And this sermon was prepared especially with you in mind. The title for my sermon this morning is The Question That God Is Asked Most. Have you ever asked God any questions? Do you perhaps have a list of questions that you would like to ask God one day? My girls and I often joke about the questions we would like to ask God, and we feel we should always keep these questions on us in case of the rapture. Questions like, did Adam have a belly button? Think about that one for a moment. Do dogs go to heaven? Why did God make mosquitoes? But then, of course, there are the more serious questions, and as we get older, those questions become deeper and more urgent. I think that at the top of everybody's list of questions would be this question, the question that God is asked most. It's this one. Oh God, why? It's a question that we're probably asking on a regular basis during this crisis, as day by day we become more aware of the global and personal implications of this pandemic. It's a question that we ask about events and circumstances in our own personal lives. Perhaps the question relates to our marriage, or our marital status, to our children, to our job, to our friends or family. Oh God, why? The question isn't new. In fact, around 3,000 years ago, this question was asked in the Bible. The psalmist asks this question right at the beginning of Psalm 22. Let me read it to you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One, you are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust, they trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by people and despised by all. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me, 
My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfil my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. And this is God's word. If you look carefully at this psalm, you will notice that there are actually two parts to it. Verses 1 to 21 can be described as tragedy, and then verses 22 to 31 can be described as triumph. Let's start with tragedy, and let's have a look at the situation in which this man found himself. We're not actually 100% sure exactly what this man is going through, but he appears to be sick, and he's certainly close to death. So verses 14 and 15, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. But actually, it's not this man's sickness that is his biggest problem. Nowhere in the psalm does this man ask God to heal him or to save him from death. No, his biggest problem is the absence of God, or the seeming absence of God. Have a look at the first two verses again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night, and am not silent. The thought is repeated in verse 11, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. And verse 19, But you, O Lord, be not far off. This is the psalmist's biggest problem. He's in trouble, and God seems to be a million miles away. C.S. Lewis described this experience in his own life. Clive Lewis was a great Christian writer and thinker of the last century. He died in 1963. 
He's probably best known for his Narnia books, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. As an older man, he found love in his life when he married the American writer Joy Gresham, but then he had to go through the pain of losing her to cancer. He wrote a book about this experience called A Grief Observed, and at one point in the book he wrote this. Meanwhile, where is God? When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? I wonder if you've ever found yourself in that situation. The psalmist's problem is further compounded because God seems to come through for others, but not for him. Look at verses 3 to 5 again. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. One Bible commentator points out that the faith of the ancestors and the faith of the psalmist are one, but their experience is vastly different. God delivered his people, but the psalmist is left abandoned. Israel's God is enthroned, but his God has forsaken him. Israel's God is holy, his God is far from saving. Israel's God receives the praise of Israel, but his God is unresponsive to his groaning. And I wonder if you've ever experienced that, that God seems to come through for others, but not for you, which can lead to feelings of inferiority, inadequacy, guilt, and even resentment. Well, if the psalmist's biggest problem is the silence of God, then his next biggest problem is the noise of his enemies. God is absent but his enemies are very real indeed. And the psalmist uses a whole lot of different images to describe these enemies. In verse 12, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Don't think of a bull quietly munching grass in a field. Think rather of a bull in an arena with a matador, or a cowboy trying to ride a wild bull, or of the running of the bulls in Spain. Bulls are dangerous. Verse 13, roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. In the ancient Near East, dogs were not man's best friend. He's not talking about tame little lap dogs. Rather, he's talking about the wild dogs that lived out in the rubbish dumps 
and would come along and attack and bite and kill sick and weak people. This poor man is encircled by these enemies. He uses that phrase twice. He's trapped and his enemies terrify him. They can't wait for him to die. In fact, while this man is still alive, they are arguing about who's going to get what once he's finally gone. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And these enemies hit him where it hurts the most. His greatest problem is the absence of God, and these enemies pick up on this. Verses 7 and 8, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. These enemies are a little bit like Job's comforters. They take out their theological systems and say, well, he's suffering, so he must have done something to upset God. God can't really love him or delight in him because something bad is happening to him. And all of this makes this man feel less than human. Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by people and despised by all. He just has the sense of being subhuman, a worm, close to death, close to being worm food. This man is sick. He's close to death. He's surrounded by people who hate him and want him to die. And in the middle of all of this, God seems to be a million miles away. What do we do with the first 21 verses of this psalm? Well, I think there are a couple of things. Firstly, I would say that this psalm reminds us that it's okay not to be okay. Actually, the whole book of Psalms teaches us this. When we hear the word psalms, we tend to think in terms of praise and thanksgiving, but there are far more psalms of lament than songs of praise in the book of Psalms. We all know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But I believe that God has specifically placed Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 side by side to show us that joy and comfort and sorrow and sadness are all part of the normal Christian life. All of us today are experiencing grief and loss to some extent. We've lost a way of life. We've lost our freedom. Perhaps we've lost our job. We've lost our income. We've lost our savings. Perhaps some have lost their health. Perhaps some have even lost friends and family members to this virus. And those losses cause us to feel sadness, depression, anger, even anger at God denial, guilt. We also experience anticipatory grief and anxiety. We're worried about an uncertain future, and our minds can imagine all sorts of things that might happen to us and those we love. Yesterday, I had a little moment of not being okay. In the last week, our cat has developed an infection under his chin, and so twice a day we need to wash his chin, squeeze out all the gunk, use a hydroxide solution on it, and put ointment on it. It's traumatic for the whole family, including the cat, who yowls and bites and scratches through the whole process. 
I took him back to the vet yesterday morning only to discover that our best efforts over the past four days have been less than successful and we'll probably be manhandling the cat for at least another three weeks. I got home and I slammed the car door, I slammed the back door, I expressed my disappointment loudly to Michelle. I know you can't believe I would ever act in this way, but it's true. Afterwards I realised it's not about the cat. Living the way in which we are living right now causes a lot of underlying stress, and I don't even have some of the stresses and strains that some of you are carrying right now. One writer says that this psalm reminds us that it's not right for us to simply say to a person in grief and sorrow that they need to pull themselves together. We should be more gentle and patient with them, and that means we should also be gentle and patient with ourselves. We should not assume that if we are trusting in God, we won't weep or feel anger or feel hopeless. It's okay not to be okay. Secondly, I believe that this psalm encourages us to be honest in our relationship with God. This past week, I came across the Lexicon of Inconspicuously Ambiguous Recommendations, or LIAR for short. It's a compendium of phrases for conveying unfavorable information about employees to future employers without getting sued. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you wanted to write a reference for a lazy employee, for example, you could say, In my opinion, you will be very fortunate to get this person to work for you. To describe someone who didn't get on very well with his colleagues, you could say, I am pleased to say that this candidate is a former colleague of mine. For a chronically absent employee, a man like him is hard to find, or it seemed her career was just taking off. For an employee who's not worth further consideration as a job candidate, you could say, I would urge you to waste no time in making this candidate an offer of employment. The fact that Psalm 22 is recorded for us in Scripture shows that we don't have to lie to God. We don't have to cover up. The psalmist is honest in his prayer. He doesn't pretend that everything is going well. He tells God exactly how he feels. Notice that the psalmist is still respectful. He doesn't cross the line into blasphemy, but he tells it the way it is. If you think about it, being honest with someone is an indication of intimacy. I don't share my deepest innermost thoughts with the stranger at pick and pay or with someone I've just met at a party. I share them with my wife or my parents. Often we take out our frustration on those closest to us, as per my cat story. We shouldn't do that. But the only reason that we can do that is because we have an intimate relationship with them. We feel safe with them. We feel that we've been polite to everyone else all day. And so when we get home, we want to share how we really feel. And God wants us to have an intimate relationship with him, where we tell him exactly what's going on in our lives. God is a loving father. He knows exactly how we feel anyway. And he wants us, as his children, to be honest with him. He wants us to share the concerns of our hearts with him. And if we really feel something to tell him, God, I don't understand what you're doing. Lord, I don't feel that you're here at the moment. 
Lord, how can you allow that? It's the picture of a toddler who is in pain, crying and screaming and hitting his fists against the chest of his father, who is holding him tightly. Through the Holy Spirit, God inspired and compiled the scriptures for us. And it's so important to see that God hasn't censored out prayers like this one. God doesn't say, real believers don't talk like that. I don't want anything like that in my Bible. He has included it to show us that in times of darkness, we can be honest and open with him. Thirdly, this psalm reminds us to hold on to God. The psalm begins with that moving phrase, my God. The very fact that the psalmist comes to God with his problems shows that he still trusts God. The psalmist may have given up on God's goodness and God's righteousness, but he steadfastly refuses to give up on God. The psalmist holds on to God's sovereignty in verses 9 and 10. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Even though he doesn't understand what God is doing, he still holds on to God. And you and I can do the same in our situation. During World War II, a group of people discovered a cellar where some people had been hiding from Hitler's persecution, and in fact where they had died. And on the wall, one of the people had written these words, I believe in the sun, even when it is not shining. I believe in love, where feeling is not. I believe in God, even if he is silent. Fourthly, this psalm points us to Jesus. You'll remember that Jesus quoted this psalm as he was hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in fact, there are a number of points of contact between this sufferer in the Old Testament and Jesus as the sufferer in the New Testament. Verses 7 and 8, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Matthew tells us of the crowd that walked past Jesus on the cross, shaking their heads and saying those exact words. Verse 14, all my bones are out of joint, describing the crucifixion. Verse 15, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, Jesus saying, I am thirsty. Verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 17, People stare and gloat over me. Verse 18. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing, which is exactly what the Roman guards did with Jesus' clothes at the foot of the cross. And so there is something very important for us to see here, and that is the fact that in whatever situation we find ourselves, we have a God who understands, one who has in the words of the book of Hebrews, being tested and tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. But it's not just the physical suffering that Jesus understands, but also the God-forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
It's interesting that on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had said to his disciples, You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. But now on the cross, at the moment when Jesus needed his Father the most, what did he find? In Lewis's words, a door slammed in his face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. For the man in Psalm 22, it only felt as if God had forsaken him. But Jesus experienced a depth of God-forsakenness that no one on this earth has ever experienced. We must never think that Jesus quoted Psalm 22 in order to fulfill scripture. This was a real God-forsakenness. Robert Murray McChain was a minister in the Church of Scotland in the 1800s, and he wrote this about Jesus' cry from the cross. He was without any comforts of God, no feeling that God loved him, no feeling that God pitied him, no feeling that God supported him. God was his son before, now that son became all darkness. He was without God. He was as if he had no God. All that God had been to him before was taken from him now. He was godless, deprived of his God. He had the feeling of the condemned when the judge says, Depart from me, you who are cursed, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He felt that God said the same to him. This is the hell which Christ suffered. Jesus cried out to God from the cross, O oh God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And the answer? For me. For you. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God. It's the only time in the Gospels where Jesus didn't call God my Father. Jesus gave up his right to call God Father, so that you and I, who have no right at all, may call God our Father. Jesus was forsaken by the Father, so that you and I may never, never be forsaken by the Father. Jesus took what we deserve, so that we could have the heaven and the glory he deserved. Well, that was the first part of the psalm, tragedy. But the psalm moves on in verse 22 and moves to triumph. You'll be relieved to know that I won't go through the section in detail. Our time has just about run out. But just to say that God comes through for this man. We don't know the story. We don't know what happened. But there's a definite shift from verse 22. God has heard the psalmist cry for help and has answered him in some way. Presumably he's been healed and his enemies have left him alone. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. 
And when we turn to the cross, we can see that a similar thing happened, that God answered. There was a great turning point that took place. It's called Easter Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus was God's resounding yes to the person and the work of his Son. That is the promise and the hope of the cross, that because Jesus died and rose again, we can know that we will be safe with him if we know him. Not even death can snatch us out of his hand. Jesus went through death, and so we can know that after death comes life, after night comes day, after Good Friday comes Easter Sunday, that love is stronger than death if we believe in Jesus. It also suggests to me that times of darkness can reveal God's grace in new depths. I don't know what this man's praise life was like before this incident, but it certainly is exuberant after a time of darkness. God doesn't waste our sufferings. Our sufferings can deepen our relationship with God, something I'm hoping to look at in a bit more detail in the weeks that lie ahead. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Timothy Keller puts it this way, In the darkness, we have a choice that's not really there in better times. We can choose to serve God just because he is God. In the darkest moments, we feel we are getting absolutely nothing out of God or out of our relationship with him. But what if then, when it doesn't seem to be paying or benefiting you at all, you continue to obey, pray to, and seek God, as well as continue to do your duties of love to others. If we do that, we are finally learning to love God for himself and not for his benefits. And when the darkness lifts or lessens, we will find that our dependence on other things besides God for our happiness has shrunk and that we have new strength and contentment in God himself will find a new fortitude, unflappability, poise and peace in the face of difficulty. The coal is becoming diamond. Our time is gone, but as we close, let me read to you a quote from Michael Wilcock, who imagines Jesus speaking to us through the psalm. It is true that Christ himself came down into darkness in this way, and was lifted out again. But here he is concerned to reach back through his word to the soul that is stuck in the depths. This can happen to a believer, he says. It doesn't mean you are lost. This can happen to someone who does not deserve it. After all, it happened to me. It doesn't mean you have strayed. It can happen at any time, as long as this world lasts. Only in the next will such things be done away with. And it can happen without you knowing why. There are answers. There is a purpose. And one day you will know. In this time, then, let us keep on going to God, being honest and open with him, holding on to him, knowing that after Good Friday comes Easter Sunday knowing that we approach someone who himself was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Amen.